Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Uh, if you've been following the show, you may have noticed that uh, almost regardless of the topic, I'm always looking for a line of action. Uh, maybe it's the time I spend as a CEO, but I like to think in terms of solutions. And in particular, I'm looking today with this show and with other shows we've done for lines of action against the enemies of liberty and freedom in America. Uh, who, who's up against us? Power-hungry politicians, bureaucrats who seem eager to... Uh, trample our constitutional rights, and in particular, the what, what I call, it's an, it's an eye-glazing over name, but administrative state, which is all the, all the federal agencies which have become, in effect, our permanent governing class uh, here in Washington. But the, 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 the infection of the permanent gov governing class is not only true in Washington, but also in a lot of the state governments and, and even city governments. Uh, one of the things, some of the things we're facing and some of the things we want to talk about today are vaccine mandates, uh, diversity rules for corporate boards that are being pushed by NASDAQ and the Security, Securities and Exchange Commission, and uh, unconstitutional federal, federal agencies, in particular at Elizabeth Warren's uh, um, Consumer Protection Bureau. Uh, joining me to talk about this are, are the returning guest Janine Yunus. Uh, with the new Civil Liberties Alliance. Uh, her man who started it, Philip Hamburger, was on here also a couple shows ago. And we brought along uh, the powers that be here, the CEO, Mark Chenoweth, uh, to join us. And they've got extensive and long backgrounds, and I'll get into some of that as, as we begin to talk. But I wanted them to really talk to us about what the mission of the new Civil Liberties Alliance is and what we're doing. What are the lines of actions uh, to push back against... Uh, against the people we need to push back against. Uh, Mark, why don't you kick it off? What, what, what is the New Civil Liberties Alliance, and what are you, what are you trying to do? Sure. So uh, the New Civil Liberties Alliance is a public interest litigation outfit, and what we're trying to do is represent both plaintiffs and defendants who are having encounters with the administrative state and make sure that their civil liberties are not being violated. Uh, what we see all too often is that these administrative agencies, as you were just saying, trample civil liberties as they're trying to enforce regulations or, or bring different kinds of enforcement actions. And the kinds of protections that you would expect to have if, say, a prosecutor from the Department of Justice were going after you in a federal district court, those same protections don't exist if it's a federal agency going after you in an administrative adjudication. So who do you represent? I mean, you, you they're... they're... Who are, your, who are your clients? Sure, our clients are, they range widely. So we have folks who, who can't afford uh, their own representation. So sort of on, all of our clients are pro bono. Uh, and some of those folks are, are, are impoverished. But we also have represented trade associations. We've represented prisoners. We've represented small business folks. We've represented uh, people who uh, are accountants or uh, who own gun stores. Lots of, lots of different kinds of, uh, of folks who encounter... Uh, administrative agencies. So the whole alphabet suit of, soup of agencies infects all of our lives, whether we realize it or not. And if you've been lucky enough not to have that happen to you yet, then 
just wait a few years. You'll probably get to just know one of these agencies. We're all, we're all gonna, <laughs> eventually, they're going to come after all of us. For sure. So be, be, for all people that aren't going to watch the entire show, let's quickly get to the website where we can find you if we want to hire you. Sure. What's your so, website? nclalegal.org is the website. Okay. So, but you can't hire us because... <laughs> <laughs> because we don't charge. We don't charge, yeah. <laughs> It's all pro right. bono. It's yeah. all pro bono. Even and, better. And, <laughs> and, but the, the key thing is that we're looking for, for cases where we can change the law, right? So it can't be a one-off situation. I mean, somebody might have a very a sympathetic story of where they've been harmed by an administrative agency, but if the particular rule or practice that we would be looking to change is only going to affect that one person, that's not really public interest law. So we're looking for opportunities to take away tools and tactics from the administrative state that it uses to violate lots of people's civil liberties. So that's how we, that's how we select our clients. We can't, unfortunately, take every case that comes along. Okay, so you don't, you're not going to help me fix my ticket. <laughs> it's not, not in our remit, sorry. <laughs> and Janine, you've got an incredibly interesting background. You spent almost 10 years as a public defender up in New York. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then I moved here about six months ago to join NCLA. And who are you defending as a public defender? I defended uh, indigent people who were in prison already. I did appeals. So, um, well, I shouldn't necessarily, not everybody was in prison, but almost all of them. So they were appealing their criminal convictions. And what was the spark that led you down here to help help in this was, fight? <laughs> yeah, it was COVID policies. I was really horrified by the government's overreach in uh, response to the pandemic uh, with lockdowns and mask mandates and then vaccine mandates are the latest now. Well, you're working on a case on vaccine mandates. In particular, you wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal about uh, vaccine mandates for children. Yeah. What, yeah. What's, what's, uh, what's going on well, with that? Well, with the, with the, so I haven't, there, we don't have any cases involving children at the moment, but I, um, I see these mandates coming because the Pfizer uh, BioNTech vaccine just received EUA approval. That's emergency use authorization. Um, and given what happened with adult mandates, where we saw vaccines um, mandated after they had only been approved for emergency use by the FDA, I suspect that that will be coming for children. And in fact, San Francisco has already uh, indicated an intent to have such a passport program for children. Um, several private schools already have mandates. Um, and it's highly problematic because the EUA, the Emergency Use Authorization Statute, has an informed consent provision. Um, which, uh, what, does that, what does that mean? I've, I've, as a non-lawyer, you're going to have to bring, yeah, bring yeah, me I'll down. Slow what down. Is, what is <laughs> yeah. Well, what it's, when Congress passed this statute, I forget if it was 2003 or four, right in that, right in that uh, area, they said, look, uh, we want to make these drugs available on an emergency use basis. If there is some pandemic or other you know, sort of unexpected thing that comes along, we want to be able to rush these drugs to market uh, and not have not make them go through the ordinary FDA process, which can be very uh, time consuming. So that's all fine. But one of the things that they said as part of that was, look, uh, we're going to make sure that the uh, that, that you can that these are done on a voluntary basis, that you can refuse administration of an emergency use authorized product uh, if you want to. No one can mandate that. Well, this administration has ignored that part of the statute and they've blown right through the informed consent provision in the emergency use authorization statute and have started mandating that people take emergency use authorized vaccines in this case. But uh, if, if, the, if the precedent is established that there isn't an informed consent provision in the EUA statute, then it could be 
any future president could mandate anybody to take any drug. And that's that's really not where we want to be as a society. Are you litigating on that now? You we are litigating what, on what's that the, issue. What's your case? We have a few. We have more than one. So uh, we have two active ones, uh, Norris versus MSC, which I think we talked about last time, and then Rodden versus Fauci. The latter It still is, bears repeating, though. Yeah. I mean, she, 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 yeah. <laughs> so Norris is, uh, <clears throat> is an employee at MSU, and actually we joined a couple of other plaintiffs. So it's three plaintiffs at MSU who uh, don't want to take the vaccine because they have naturally acquired immunity. That's uh, Michigan State University? Yeah, okay. yeah. We lost the preliminary injunction, so we're currently pursuing the uh, underlying lawsuit itself. And then Rodden versus Fauci uh, is opposing the federal employee vaccine mandate. So that's Biden um, announced that all federal employees have to get the vaccine. And, and there's sort of two slightly different arguments in those two cases. Yeah. So in the, in the Michigan State University case, what we're making is, uh, is a... Uh, is a sort of supremacy clause uh, based argument in the Constitution, federal law, Trump state law. So the fact that there is a federal statute on the books that says you can't mandate this, it would undermine the, the federal policy when it comes to uh, emergency use authorized drugs to allow state entities to mandate something. Well, that's Michigan State University is a public university. They are mandating vaccines in a way that contradicts federal statute. So that's part of the controversy there, part of what we're litigating in that case. The Rodden v. Fauci case is a little bit different because there it's just federal employees who are involved. And so we're arguing more directly that the federal statute does not authorize the president or anyone else to force federal employees to, to get vaccinated, or at least they have this ability under the statute to refuse administration of an EUA. And this, is our, right. and this is our favorite guy, Anthony Fauci. Yeah. This is, 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 the he, one is the he being named as a defendant yeah. personally? He is the first He's person the first. named <laughs> in, the, in the defendants. Yeah. Yes, he is. Can you do that? I thought federal employees were protected from lawsuits. He's named in his official capacity. Okay, well, good. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what are the odds if we can begin rolling back some of these mandates? Do we have, uh, there have been some recent decisions that are helpful to us, aren't there? Yeah, there have been some really good Not decisions. Not necessarily the one you guys <laughs> have been handling, but other ones. But, yeah. Uh, well, we didn't get the worst decision. Uh, the judge, uh, we moved for a preliminary injunction or temporary restraining order, and the judge uh, basically thought that we sued the wrong people, that we should have sued the agencies themselves inst instead of uh, focusing on the task force. Um, so we're, you know, we're looking at amending the complaint accordingly. But um, there were a couple of Good recent decisions over the past few days, actually. One um, uh, court in Kentucky stayed the federal contractor mandate. So Biden had issued a federal con contractor mandate requiring all federal contractors to get the vaccine. Um, that only applies in Ohio, Kentucky, and Louisiana, sorry, Tennessee. Um, but, you know, it was a very good decision. There was a discussion about whether there's real emergency going on what, um, and, you know, various aspects that of issue that I think a lot of Americans are getting frustrated with. And then there, the health care workers, Biden's health care workers mandate was also stayed first um, just in a few states and then another court uh, it, uh, extended it nationwide. So that was a very good decision. And again, um, you know, touched on a lot of issues I think we're concerned about. And there was actually an explicit discussion about why natural immunity hasn't been recognized and the court said it was puzzled. Um, well, one of the things I think is interesting about that case, and this one's in the Western District of Louisiana, <laughs> Federal District Court, is the judge said, well, CMS used to recognize natural immunity, 
and then they stopped recognizing that. CMS is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Okay. So it's the right. it's the Medicare yeah. entity uh, in the federal government. They they used to recognize it, and they stopped. And when when a federal agency changes policy like that, it has to adequately justify and explain the change in policy. And one of the things the judge said in granting the uh, the nationwide uh, preliminary injunction is that CMS did not explain why it was going away from its prior recognition of natural immunity. It's the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with uh, Mark Chenoweth and Janine Yunus, and we're talking about vaccine mandate mandates. And I guess my question is, why you you've had a chance to to come up against these people in these agencies? Why are they so passionate about making sure everybody gets vaccinated when in, in particular people that have had the uh, virus and gotten over it where they've got natural immunity? There seems to be this obsession and it doesn't seem to be driven by public policy, health health considerations, it seems to be driven by something else. I think you're absolutely right. And, and I think that, that the way that we know that is you just look at how all of these statutes are being deformed to try to get to the vaccine mandate. Deformed, whether, what's that mean? Well, just being used for You went to Yale, I, I understand, you gotta go. <laughs> just being I used. went to Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know we're, we're Purdue Boilermakers in my family, so we okay, well, there we go. that oh, later. Well, but, that's uh, a bigger issue. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna be number one this week, I think, in, uh, in college basketball. But, uh, 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 it just means that these statutes are being put to purposes other than the reason why Congress passed them, the reason why the, the statutes were adopted in the in the first place. So OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, uh, or Occupational Safety and Health Act, is about protecting workplace safety. So it's, it's about slip and fall situations or having toxic materials in the workplace, that kind of thing. It doesn't involve a national health issue that affects workers and non-workers alike. That's not the kind of thing that OSHA, the, the OSHA statute was designed to, to, to combat, and yet it's being brought to bear here to try to force vaccine mandates. Same thing with, uh, with the, the federal contractor uh, situation. So there are, you have an ability to put certain kinds of conditions on federal contracts to ensure that the contracts are being performed in a responsible way, but that doesn't extend to forcing all of the employees of the contractors to forcibly take an injection into their body. That's not something that's ever been part of federal contract law. We've never seen that before. This is an unprecedented uh, reach and extension beyond the use of, of federal law. And I would frankly say the same thing with regard to the federal employee uh, statute, which we're fighting down in the Southern District of Texas. We've, we know that the, the executive, sure, the president, the executive branch has a lot of control over federal employees. But does that extend to forcing them to get a vaccine that they that they don't want and they don't need in the case of, of folks with natural immunity? That that's unprecedented that that we would see that. And, and in fact, what Congress has said is that the president has the ability to order soldiers to get vaccines. But the statute only talks about soldiers. And I would think by negative implication, all other federal employees, he doesn't have that power. And yet that's the power that he's claiming to have. In, in well, first ordering the vaccine, and now I guess for for Christmas or something, yeah. they've decided not to enforce it until January. But well, well what, I know you got you're both careful lawyers, so you don't like to speculate. But I'd love to have you speculate <laughs> about about motivation. I sure. Mean, would, you, what's behind the mo why? I th okay. please. 
Oh, I, I, I think it's political. I mean, I think the Democrats are trying to exploit this issue in order to, you know, uh, make blame. And you used the, to be a Democrat. Yeah. Yeah. I voted entirely Democrat my whole life till the end of 2020. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. so anyway. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I think, you know, they the the virus is not going to go away. It's endemic. And um, they can blame the, the bad Republicans who won't get the vaccines for for this. And uh, so I think it's just an exploitation for political gain. And, um, you know, that actually the court and at least one of the decisions, I think the healthcare worker one made a very good point, which is there's been no showing that these mandates do anything. We don't know there. There really hasn't been a showing from the scientific perspective that these vaccines are good at stopping transmission. And it appears they might not be very good at stopping. No, transmission. they're not. The um, jury's coming in. Yeah. And then these mandates, I mean, a lot of people work remotely. A lot of people have natural immunity. So these mandates just haven't been shown to do anything. And yet they're tearing the country apart. I'll tell you a funny story we've heard about. I mean, I say funny, but uh, it's not a laughing matter. We, we could use there's, a little humor. Yeah, but there's we, we were contacted by uh, by someone and I won't I won't give any identifying uh, information except to say that this person uh, drives nuclear waste for a living. Uh, Nuclear waste is generated at at various sites around the country, and it has to be transported to other places. Uh, and and you, as you might imagine, this is very carefully, heavily regulated uh, area. But what's the government concerned about? Whether or not this person who drives nuclear waste around has been vaccinated or not in the cab of his truck where he is by himself. That's where the that's where the focus of federal. I, I just it, it it blows the mind to think about just the. The risk versus risk that you're that you're looking at there is is night and day, uh, and yet they would they would have this person fired from his job so that they can bring in somebody else who may not be as good at driving nuclear waste around and doesn't have decades of experience doing it. That that just that seems reckless to me. But but to your question, uh, Bill, about the, the the why behind it, I think there's a couple of things, and not not to disagree with with Janine, but I do think that. That control is a part of what's going yeah. on here. That there's I agree a, with that too. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 yeah. You know, there's a if if the government can get people in the habit of just doing what they're told and controlling them, then that makes that makes it easier to accomplish different kinds of of uh, socio political objectives that the government may have. And you know, it's the old "never let a crisis go to waste" sort of sort of line that we heard from. Uh, from uh, President Obama's uh, chief of staff and, and later uh, mayor of Chicago, uh, Rahm Emanuel. And I think that's what's happening here. They're not letting the crisis go to waste. They're exerting control. And then I think there's a, a more innocuous explanation as well, which is there's a certain narrow-mindedness in all of these federal agencies. Because if you're in the agency in charge of uh, vaccines, then you're going to think that vaccines are the solution to the problem. It's the old, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Yeah. And so I think there's some of that going on as well. So the CDC thinks, well, we have certain power. We should, we should have a nationwide eviction moratorium in place and prevent anybody from, you know, from, from getting kicked out of their, of their home. Well, you're not in charge of housing policy, uh, CDC, but that didn't stop them from well, and it, the, doing it. Apart from the vaccine, and which is, and we've got some other things we need to talk about, too. But your charter is to deal with people who have been abused by the administrative state. So this is not just vaccines. This is happening in all, all other areas of private life. And I do, I do think it's in part political. I do think it's in part control. 
uh, but it, it 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 seems like it's they're very interested in not. I I, I don't know. I'm I'm. But by the way, full disclosure, I, I finished up my own case of COVID uh, about five or six weeks ago. Virginia Department of Health called me and declared me safe for public consumption. So <laughs> I can drive nuclear waste now. Uh, but I'm. But there is. But I, I I do think there's something called long COVID. It makes you there's. The Chinese in their in their in their virus factory in Wuhan, I think, did cook up something that was a gain of function uh, virus. I'm speculating, but that's what I believe. So anyway, I couldn't remember my next question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, so to the points we've been making too, I think there's been a shocking lack, and I think this might just be stupidity more than anything else. But there's a shocking <laughs> lack of uh, thought for unintended consequences. Like the government thinks they can just order people to do this, and they're going to do it. They're not thinking about the fact that actually a lot of people are going to quit their jobs, including healthcare workers. And one of the courts um, noted that and said, you know, the, the purpose of the statute that they're using to mandate the vaccines is to, to protect patients. And this is not protecting patients because all of these people, these healthcare workers are going to quit. Um, and, and so that was actually one of the that'll be a problem for the patients. Yeah, that'll be a problem for the patients. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, let's let's change gears uh, to uh, we've got a couple topics. We've got the diversity rules. We've got the consumer the Elizabeth uh, Warren Consumer Protection Bureau. Pick one. Oh, let's <laughs> let's talk SEC, Nasdaq. Uh, okay, good. That's rule. SEC. Yeah. That's in my old world. I can. Okay. Sure. What's at stake? The, as I understand it, Nasdaq uh, proposed diversity rules for every company that's listed on Nasdaq. And their version of diversity rules is you need to have at least three women on the board. Well, so and, or is it or do they define diversity more broadly? Yeah, there are a few different rules clicking around, including in California. But the federal rule or the, the Nasdaq rule that was approved by the SEC has a, has a few different components to it. Uh, one is that uh, you have to have at least one woman uh, on the board of directors. You have to have a, a and that's a separate requirement, then in addition to having one woman on the board, you also have to have one underrepresented minority uh, on the board. And that can either be a racial minority uh, or it can be a sexual orientation minority. Now, what your race or your sexual orientation has to do with your ability to be a good steward of corporate resources, I haven't a clue. Uh, but that's what the, that's what the rule requires. Then there's a second rule that the that NASDAQ has, has put out and that SEC has approved that says we have a group of board-ready candidates that you can tap so that if you are having problems identifying a, a woman or an underrepresented minority or, 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 or someone of, a, of an underrepresented sexual orientation for your board, you can pick somebody off of our pre-approved list and add them to your board. Whose list is this? NASDAQ this has the, the list? This, exactly. And there's a, not that it matters, but there's a woman who's the CEO of NASDAQ. Okay. Could we say that she's self-interested here? Well, I don't know, but it, it seems to me an odd idea <clears throat> that someone would be board ready to sit on every board in America. I mean, I just don't think that's right. I think that, that companies have different uh, things that they're specializing in, right? I mean, I don't think that that, that Nike has the same needs that General Electric has, has the same needs that Exxon has. I mean, these are different companies doing different things. I don't know that you would have somebody who would be 
board ready for all of those boards. Now, the SEC needs to approve these NASDAQ rules. And those might, might, those are probably not NASDAQ companies that I named, by the way. But <laughs> No, they're New York Stock yeah, Exchange. Exactly. It doesn't matter, though, because it's all going the same direction. It is. So what's your lawsuit? So the lawsuit is on behalf uh, of the uh, NCPPR, the National Center for Public Policy Research uh, here in Washington, D.C. And NCPPR has done something interesting. They've gone And that's out, run by Justin Danoff? Uh, I believe he runs the Free Enterprise Project. Okay, uh, that's there. part of that. Yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. yeah. And NCPPR has done something interesting. They've gone out and bought shares in a bunch of different publicly held companies, including on NASDAQ and on NYSE. And that gives them standing to object to things like the rules uh, that we're uh, that we're talking How about. How many shares do you need to own? A hundred? I don't know. Is that it a round a, lot? I don't know. Doesn't that even matter. A okay, anyway, not yeah, much. Not it may, much. It may not be. It may not be even that many. But uh, but shareholder standing is is something that we wouldn't NCLA wouldn't be able to sue on our own. We can file comments with SEC and complain about the rule or point out illegalities. But to actually sue over the rule, you have to have someone with with standing, which is just a legal term saying someone whose interests are being uh, are being negatively affected, someone who's being harmed by by the rule. So uh, NCPPR has that as a as a shareholder, and we have uh, we've filed a lawsuit against the SEC over these board diversity uh, rules. And our main objection to the rules, the thing that our uh, and we haven't filed our brief yet, so this will this will happen later this month. But what it will say is that the SEC doesn't have power from Congress to pass rules like this. That if you look at the organic statutes for the SEC that date back to the 1930s. What the agency was set up to do was to prevent force or to prevent fraud, rather, and to look out for the best interests of, of shareholders from a market governance uh, standpoint. And this doesn't have anything to do with that. This is a, a, a socio-political objective outside of the ambit uh, of the SEC's uh, statutory authority. Well, that's really the heart of the matter. No, wait, uh, this is Bill Walton's show. I'm here with uh, Janine Yunus and. Uh, Mark Chenoweth, who with the new Civil Liberties Alliance, who are helping uh, fight back against the predations of the administrative state. I'm going to make the administrative state a very popular term someday. <laughs> I like predations. We're going to have to. We're going to like have to predate, on that. Yeah. You can have predations. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but that's really the heart of it. I was in a private equity business. I ran a public company, and my job was to increase shareholder value. I thought this was in the old days. Yeah. And so either in a public company or a private company, I was looking for directors. I was looking for somebody who had industry expertise, who maybe knew something about technology or the market, or in particular, I like to hire people who'd been CEOs of other companies because they understood how to make decisions and how to live with them. There's a whole set of really interesting criteria to pick a good board, and it can be quite diverse. It's not going to be all the same people. But I never really thought in terms of what color or what sex they were. And that's probably where we got to consider if you're a shareholder of a company, do you want the board bringing people on who know about the business or do you want people to fit a, uh, a category? Well, and, and the lawsuit that we're in is being joined to another lawsuit <clears throat> that was already uh, being brought. Uh, Boyd and Gray's law firm here in, in uh, Washington, D.C., yeah, Boyd, Boyden's great. Yeah, they they represent a uh, largely anonymous group of uh, of companies and board uh, directors and uh, members of boards of directors and so forth 
uh, who are objecting uh, to the rule. And one of their clients, and again, this is someone who hasn't been publicly identified, uh, is a minority who is a member of a board and says, hey, wait a minute, there's going to be stigma against me if this rule goes into effect. That's exactly right. That's the problem with affirmative action. I'm sorry, continue. Well, and, and, and that's what, that's part of what they're, so they're focusing on those issues in the lawsuit and sort of a 14th Amendment kind of, where I guess uh, this is federal action. So it would be a Fifth Amendment kind of due process equal protection concerns around around the rule because he says, look, uh, I, I'm on the board now. I'm, I'm well regarded in what I do. But if you pass this rule that requires the company to have minority members, then folks will think that I'm only on the board because I'm filling a quota. And I don't want that. Yeah, I, you also... as a recovering, <laughs> recovering, <laughs> as a recovering lefty, what do you think about that? By I the mean, way, I think I'm a recovering lefty too, but I was a lot younger. I find this practice really appalling. I mean, I don't have very much experience or any experience with the corporate world, but um, when I was a public defender, there was actually the last couple of years I was there, there was a push to have this sort, these sort of hiring practices. Uh, a lot of the sort of I don't know, I guess Gen Z or younger millennials really wanted this sort of thing. And so they ended up sitting around with people's resumes, like, you know, looking them up and, is this person black? And I mean, it's so offensive, you know, you're sitting yeah. there adjudicating this. And I, I think a lot of people, I'm not exactly a minority, but I have some, <laughs> some minority credentials. It's, you don't want to think that you were chosen for the part because you, because of that, you know? And I think for a lot of people, a lot of people, myself included, are concerned that if, this is the way society is going where people are going to assume we're actually not competent and we only got the job for those reasons. So, well, you know, that's, uh, we talked about this before we came on. That's why I stopped on purpose labeling people libertarian, conservative, this side or the other. I, I tend to think it's all the people who are lining up on the side of, of liberty and, and excellence and fairness and, and against the kind of I'll use my favorite, new favorite word, predations, <laughs> of, of the people who want to tell us how things ought to be and organize things by, by race, class, and, and, uh, and gender. Uh, I mean, I don't want to, I, I do believe that there are a lot of inequities that, you know, are sort of built into society because of history, um, but I just don't think this is the right way to get about them, right. to go about fixing it. I mean, the right way to go about fixing it is, you know, elementary school edu education on, and it's now the Democrats who want to keep schools closed because they're afraid of COVID. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and boards are getting better. I mean, if you look at the statistics around board diversity, they're getting better on their own. There are a lot more women on boards of directors than there were 10, 20, 30 years ago. There are more minorities on the boards. This is something that the companies are uh, inclined to do uh, on their own, maybe in response well, well, to, to public pressure. Yeah. But you don't need a federal mandate to, to well, bring there, this about. There, there's so much virtue signaling in this whole world because sure. I know the, the head of Goldman Sachs came out and said, we won't be the investment banker to any company that doesn't have diversity on its board. Well, it turns out all their clients already do. And so he basically was self-defining what he'd already, self-categorizing everything he already had in place. Right. Uh, the... Uh, the lawsuit, though, you know, you're up against a, a lot of people that don't agree. I mean, both the shareholder, big shareholder advisory shops, ISS and Glass-Lewis, they're all for this rule. Sure. Um, I'm sure BlackRock is for it. And well, Vanguard and, and uh, Sonnet State Street. I mean, they're all lined up on the other side. Have they weighed in on this suit yet? 
Uh, they haven't yet. They might uh, when it when it uh, gets to the right stage. But the nice thing for us is it doesn't really matter what what they think. There are federal statutes that dictate whether or not the SEC has power to do this, and the opinion of corporate America on those statutes is irrelevant. Uh, the statute either gives SEC this power or it doesn't. We think very strongly that it does not. If it doesn't have this power, then it can't do it. And if it wants to do it, then it needs to go back to Congress and suggest that Congress give the agency the power to do this. It can't just act beyond its statutory limits. Well, I hope we, I hope you can make this something like a tip of the spear argument and get everybody emotionally engaged in this, because your point your point about the, the the black man who didn't want to be identified, he wanted to be identified as somebody qualified, I think that really gets to the heart of the matter. And the more we balkanize everybody according to these various categories, um, the less you can feel good about your own achievements. I think that's I think that's right. Yeah. Based on my own experience, too, the people who mainly push for these are actually like young white people, these sorts of rules. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the people of color I know do not like these ideas. Well, that's interesting. So uh, the, the other one we wanted to talk about was the uh, um, Elizabeth Warren Agency. Right. The, the CPFB. Correct. The, yes. Or, so do I have that initial correct? You, you do. Well, they've changed it a couple of times. So it's, that's, so that's so why <laughs> I have. Okay. Okay. So what is yes. it now? Uh, well, CFPB, I think, is, is what it is again. Okay. What it was originally. And then in between, it was the the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection, which is what it is in the federal statute. Okay. But, uh, but I think the reason that they've gone to CFPB is partly because of the logo. I think they like the logo. And I think they also like the uh, making it sound like the Consumer Product Safety Commission, the CPSC. Uh, so they, they like to, to reorder the letters for some reason. But, in any, but, but by any name, this is a, uh, a noxious uh, federal agency. And the, what, the, what Elizabeth Warren did with the creation of this uh, agency is they took about, uh, about 10 or 11 federal statutes that were being uh, enforced by different agencies and authorities. And this was constituted during the time of Dodd-Frank. Is this a piece of Dodd-Frank? Uh, or did it come afterwards? Uh, you know, I, I don't it doesn't, remember. Doesn't, doesn't matter. It, doesn't it matter. was right at the same time. Okay. But I can't remember Roughly. whether it was part of the exact same statute uh, as Dodd-Frank. I think it was, yeah. but I'm not 100% sure about that. But in any event, uh, they took all these authorities and they, they brought them under one agency and massively funded uh, the agency uh, in a way that... Uh, so I, I worked at the Consumer Product Safety Commission uh, once upon a time. That's, that's my dirty little secret. But, uh, uh, you know, that, that's an agency. You also worked for Mike Pompeo. I did. I did. That's, uh, that's, uh, uh, I was his first chief of staff on Capitol Hill before anybody knew who Mike was. You did, you did good. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. I, maybe if I'd known he was going to be secretary of state, I would have uh, stuck around a little bit no, longer. We, need, but, we uh, need you where you are. <laughs> well, that's what I told him at the time. I said, I said I don't, you know, I've, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't come to Washington, D.C. to be a Hill rat. I wanted to, uh, you know, to to do things like the public interest law that I'm doing now. And Mike was really supportive of that. But, uh, but in any event, the, the, the CFPB is a, is a Frankenstein of, of an agency in a couple of respects. Maybe most importantly, uh, the power that the director of the CFPB has is massive. Federal judges have looked at this, including, I believe it was uh, Judge Kavanaugh when he was on the D.C. Circuit, said that the head of the CFPB has more power than anyone in the federal government other than the president of the United States. 
And that's problem enough that you've put that much power under one agency. But it's also an agency that is largely uh, out of control because Congress deliberately removed itself from the oversight process with regard to this agency. At the time that this agency was set up, this was the first two years of the Obama administration. You may remember there was something like, I think there were temporarily 60 or 59 Democrat senators. They knew this was likely to be a high watermark for, for Democrat office holding on Capitol Hill. And they wanted to set up an agency that subsequent administrations or subsequent Congresses couldn't, uh, you know, couldn't reduce the power of. And so they took its its funding mechanism outside of the congressional appropriations process. Every other federal agency is funded on an annual basis by Congress in a law that is passed by both houses of the legislature and signed by the president. Not so for CFPB. CFPB gets its funding directly from the Federal Reserve, and the amount of funding that it gets was established in that original law. And it goes up, there's an inflation adjuster, it goes up every year, this head of the CFPB asks for the money, and the Fed has to say yes, and they just write the check and hand it over. Well, and didn't the first director, Richard Cordray, proceed to build a Taj Mahal for headquarters? They uh, they spent a lot of money on on building the, uh, the 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 new headquarters for the agency. Absolutely. Well, I'll call it a Taj Mahal. <laughs> <laughs> it was all now. Now they want to put him on the uh, the Federal Reserve Board. Oh, is that the latest? Yeah. He did so much good. The, the people of Ohio loved him so much when he ran for governor. But what uh, does it do, and what's your lawsuit about? What do you? What are we? What are we? Uh, what are we trying to fight here? So, other than its very existence. Well, and that, and that's. I mean, that is what's at issue in the lawsuit. But we. Um, because stepping back, the point you made is we want every agency to be accountable to the people. Absolutely. And accountable to the people through elected officials, congressmen, senators. And what they did with this agency, they'd already done with a lot of other agencies. They just punted a lot of the power over to uh, the administrative state so they didn't have to get uh, blamed for what happened. They did, but it's it's on steroids compared to other agencies okay. because yeah. of the, the lack of oversight. So the, the statute explicitly says that the congressional oversight committees don't have oversight over CFPB the way that they do uh, the budgets of every other uh, agency yeah. uh, in the in the sec, in the uh, executive branch. Uh, and then this funding stream being separate is the other problem. But we represent a, a woman named uh, Crystal Maroney. Uh, Crystal uh, is an attorney. Uh, she Her clients are largely folks who are in the debt collection business. And she works with her clients to try to uh, make sure that they're staying compliant in, in the ways that they go about collecting debt from the people who are indebted to them. And that's what she does. She's not a debt collector herself, but she's uh, she's an attorney connected at the time that this mm -hmm. enforcement action was brought, connected to them. The CFPB uh, came after uh, her with a, a civil investigative demand uh, with, because they wanted information that she had about her clients. Now you might think, well, isn't that attorney-client privileged information? Well, a lot of it is, absolutely. And that's why Crystal said, I can't turn this information over to you. This is attorney-client privileged information. And the agency said, well, we don't care. We want it anyway. And she said, well, I'm not going to turn it over to you. And so that's when they brought this uh, enforcement action. And, and what Crystal said is, look, if a federal court says you have to turn over this information, then my hands will be tied. I'll have to, I'll have to turn over uh, the information. But meanwhile, uh, CFPB 
uh, you're unconstitutionally constituted. And we made uh, a couple of claims initially in the in the lawsuit. One of the claims we made was that the director of the CFPB uh, was unlawfully uh, uh, had too much power in the way that the person was appointed, that they were protected from removal by the president in a way that you don't typically see. So you have let's take the secretary of state since you mentioned my old boss uh, mike pompeo if the president wants to remove the secretary of state and the last president did want to remove his first secretary of state he can fire him immediately right there's no protection for that person well that wasn't true of the director of the cfpb uh, the president couldn't directly remove that person they had to had to be for cause we have for cause removal protection for multi-member agencies like the sec like the CPSC, the Federal Trade Commission, there's some of these multi-member agencies that, that the, the heads of those uh, commissions can only be removed for cause. But we didn't have any single director agencies where the head of the agency could only be removed can for you, cause. Can this go to the, to the Supreme Court? It can, and in fact, that already is that, is that is that the goal? Well, that was the goal. Okay. And <clears throat> another case beat us to the Supreme Court on that particular issue. Right. And the CFPB already lost on that issue. But the interesting thing is about about that issue is that, well, what that means now is that the agency is directly under the control of the president. Well, that might be better from a from a Democratic accountability standpoint uh, that we were talking about earlier. You don't have the, the independence of this massively powerful agency. But it's also worse in another respect, which is that now the president is directly funding this agency. So he doesn't have to go through Congress like he does for everything else that he does. He, he can just run this agency any way he wants to without oversight, without having to go back to Congress for more funding requests and, and can just go haywire. So that's actually worse. And we argue uh, is a separate constitutional violation. There's a separation of powers problem with the way that the CFPB is set up now. It's also, we think, a violation uh, of uh, the appropriations clause of Article One of the Constitution, the way that uh, how are the courts lined? Uh, I mean, are the courts receptive to this point of view, or do you have people that are on the on the left that say, you know, no chance, we're going to keep it the way it is? How do you? What do you? What, how, how do our odds look? Uh, the receptivity hasn't. Well, it was great on the first issue, right? <clears throat> I mean, it went all the way to the Supreme Court successfully, so that was good. On this broader objection to the CFPB's funding structure, we've had surprisingly. Uh, little support for that so far. Now, we um, uh, the issue's on appeal to the Second Circuit, and we're hopeful that the Second Circuit will see things differently than the federal district court did uh, in New York, uh, because we do think that there's a strong argument here on, on multiple constitutional grounds. But it's not, uh, it's not an argument. I think that many people, whether it's the CFPB or other agencies, want to look over these constitutional niceties and just say, well, we support what that agency is doing, and you know, Janine, you don't support what the agency is doing, so you must be, you must be evil or bad, since since the agency is doing something good and you're against it. And what we're trying to do at uh, at NCLA is make people understand, independently of whether you agree with what the agency is doing from a subject matter ex, uh, standpoint, it still has to follow the law. It still has to follow the Constitution. It can't do things outside the statutes that Congress has passed. It can't do things that violate the Constitution. It can't do things that violate people's civil liberties under the Bill of Rights. And yet these agencies are in their uh, excitement or enthusiasm to maximally enforce the law in some cases or to achieve certain kinds of, of ends, 
are all the time trampling people's civil liberties, violating the Constitution, ignoring the statutes that Congress has passed. And that's where we come in and say, stop it. You can't do that. And the federal courts are where we go because the federal courts have the power to tell the agencies uh, to stop behaving in this way. I think you just summed up the show. <laughs> Thank you. That was great. Sure. Uh, so, again, we can find you on uh, the website. Uh, NCLALegal.org. And do you have any other former lefties working for you besides Janine? <laughs> well, you know, I don't, we don't ask the politics of our employees when, doesn't we, matter. when we hire them. So no. how can we support you? What's the, uh, how do we find that? There is a donate button at, uh, at nclalegal.org. <laughs> We're always happy to have folks uh, uh, support us. Uh, but look, we, we need more than financial support. We're building an alliance. The NCLA yeah. is, uh, is about trying to find like-minded folks who, who also want these federal agencies to stop violating people's civil liberties. And there, this used to be a bipartisan issue. I think when the, when the ACLU took a stand on, on First Amendment issues or when it took a stand a against uh, some of the civil liberties that were being violated, that wasn't viewed as necessarily a, a left-right issue. But over time, the ACLU abandoned that kind of uh, that that uh, high ground, I think, and they've become a very partisan organization. Well, we think that high ground should still be occupied, and we're happy to jump up there if no one else is going to do it and defend people's civil liberties. We don't care about the politics of our clients. We don't ask our 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 clients their politics. We have clients of of all. I assume of we have clients who disagree with some of the other cases that we're bringing because we don't. You know, we, that's not a requirement to, uh, to to be a client of ours. We don't care about uh, the politics of the people that we sue either. And that's why people might say, well, you sound like you're a right-wing organization. Well, really, we filed dozens of lawsuits against the Trump administration because if we saw a federal agency, and, and that, this gets back to the federal agencies aren't always under the control of, of any administration, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to sue. We don't care if it's a Republican administration or a, or a Democrat administration. We care about whether people's civil liberties are being violated. Anything you want to add? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think Mark did well, a good job. What's your experience? You, you deal directly with our clients, Janine. What's been your experience with, uh, you know, with, with our with our folks? Are are we out there looking for right wing zealots as our as oh, our client no, base? Oh no, not at all. No, and yeah, I didn't think you'd join if that were the case. No, <laughs> there are, and there are a couple of other, I would say, people who I believe lean more to the left um, well, at NCLA. I'm, yeah, I'm optimistic a little bit when I hear you because I think the, the overreach, as you pointed out earlier, just the, 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 pol the political aspects, the control aspects, I think more and more people are beginning to say, wait, you're really pushing every single button way too far, yeah. and we need to push back. So I think that's, that's probably... Yeah, that's why I wanted to get you guys back on, because that's that I think is our line of action. Yeah. Working, working through you. Yeah, I think uh, if Twitter is any indication, there are a lot of people who used to vote Democrat who are very uh, disaffected with the way the party's going and yeah, um, yeah. The, the violations of civil liberties that it's embracing. And there's a lot of great think tanks in town that think through these issues and put out white papers and that and that kind of thing. We don't need white papers, but, but we're a do tank. <laughs> The days of white papers are <laughs> over. Uh, this has been the Bill Walton Show, and I've been here with Mark Chenoweth and Jenny Nunes, and we've been with both with the civil, New Civil Liberties Alliance, and they're, uh, they're striking a blow for liberty and freedom and I think represent the vast majority of Americans in their work, and I'm really glad you guys are here and glad you're doing it, and 
We'll get you back on when we have the next whip victory in our lawsuit. Thanks, Ray. Thanks so much for having uh, Anyway, thanks for, thanks for joining, and uh, we'll be talking with you soon. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone, and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.